Hello listeners and welcome to today's episode of Blind Insights. Today we're going to talk about the power of words. The power of words to make you imagine, the power of words to make you reflect, and the power of words to make you laugh and smile. We have no idea what's going to happen next. The ultimate hidden truth of the world is that it is something that we make and could just as easily make differently. David Graeber, 1961 to 2020. Welcome to Blind Insights. I'm joined today by David Olney. How are you, David? Very well. It's very early. I've already had my pink coffee. The cup is already in the bin, so I'm caffeinated, but sadly have no beverage to play with. <laughs> someone who uh, is also extremely uh, caffeinated and someone who I expect a, um, a high amount of uh, IPM insights per minute <laughs> on, the, <laughs> on the Blind Insights podcast. Thank you for joining us, Steve Davis. <laughs> uh, thank you. Wow. <laughs> it's like being flogged with a warm lettuce. Oh, words. <laughs> <laughs> We're going for the hardcore verbiage early. Yes. It's only downhill from here. Verbiage, that's a good word. Is well, verbiage a word? Yeah. It is. It awesome. Is. I'm glad I found it. <laughs> uh, look, I'm still I'm in the zone because last night I went to the State Theatre's uh, premiere of uh, The Gospel According to Paul, which is all about Paul Keating. And if ever there was a leader... Who yep. used words so well and as little daggers and swords? It was Paul Keating, mm. just really colourful. Hence, it's like being flogged with a warm lettuce. Mm. Was one of it's his. It's so Keating esque. Mm. I love that. Absolutely. Who and was his major speechwriter? Don somebody? Oh yes, that uh, guy's amazing. His ability to use words. But I actually think Keating also, to his credit, he. That was good for the speeches, but he was great on his feet. Oh, on his feet, he was amazing, but you put the two of them together where he obviously could write a good speech, but this guy just added another dimension. And I guess it probably meant that they both kept learning. The speechwriter learned from his ability to speak on his feet, mm -hmm. and Paul Keating got the extra dimensions of building more architecture into things than just being quick. You know, it's like going from being a boxer doing a single hit to being able to do a combination. Absolutely. And there is a structure to great oratory. And it's often it's breaking grammatical rules for emotional effect. Ooh, mm. interesting. Well, you know, listeners, we were playing with words before we started and we lost a lot of great material. Yeah. But that's exactly what we were doing, mm. is we were breaking grammar rules to get somewhere. Mm. A, a logical place to start. Okay, listeners, any of you understand the histories of well, the history of universities? Almost all universities in the medieval period had a rhetoric department. Somewhere where people learnt to argue, learnt to use words to win. And it wasn't debating kind of in the modern sense of being polite and nice. It was the ruthless application of intellect and words to dominate. Mm. Now, it was very medieval in that sense. And ironically, guess what? They didn't know much, but they were really good at expressing it. And yet here we are in the you know 2021, we know a lot, and it appears most people are less good at expressing it. So something very strange has happened. We have more information and less capacity to present it beautifully or powerfully. That's my opening gambit. <laughs> and a profoundly sad one. It is. Yeah, but something we can always do something about because the great thing now is in that medieval period, you would have had to 
be very rich or you know, a monk to get access to books. Now, it's only lack of interest that stops people getting access to books. If you go to Project Gutenberg, you can have all this amazing literature on your, your handheld device for free. But the difference there is the, the person who moderates what we read, how we read it, when we read it, which I would imagine the tutors in those early university days would have done for their students. Mm. Whereas here, if we're just left inside the largest library in the world... It's overwhelming. It is. It's, it's, yeah. it's akin to thinking, okay, I've got 45 minutes. Let's sit down and put Netflix on. And you spend 44 minutes... Trying to find picking. something, <laughs> yeah, and which always makes you feel less about yourself mm. uh, and the time you've just wasted. Uh, so yeah, there is that. That's what we. I, I think it's we are paying a price for that because that skill is so important. That is the skill that great leaders use. I mean, for good or ill. Mm. To words are powerful towards a cause. Mm. Mm. In fact, Jonathan Biggins. I've got to take my hat off. He he wrote and acted in this play, The Gospel According to Paul, he captured so many beautiful moments. I mean, it's fun. It's fully charged, laughter the whole way, but with poignant parts. But he does lament the passing of leaders, of leadership. Mm. He said this lot just doesn't pass for it at the moment. It's just, you know, little soundbite after soundbite, and they're yeah. inept and, you know, worse even. Uh, so it, it just made us hunger for those days when there was someone in charge who could grab us by the scruff of the neck and lead us. Mm. Mm. And it's very interesting too in terms of powerful words. So, you know, what year would it have been? 1995, mm -hmm. doing a university course on anarchism, wanting to learn about Max Stirner. And in the entire Barsmith Library, there was one book. And the mm. title of the one <laughs> book was The Breakout from the Crystal Palace. Mm. And you're like, do you need a cooler name for a book about a German anarchist? <laughs> I don't think you do. <laughs> so in a sense, you know, this thing of curated words, curated knowledge, when there was less knowledge and it was curated, yes, you were being pointed in a direction where there was less to find and you were being shown perhaps how to read it. But as long as you worked out that the system was trying to get you to look in one direction, you could choose to absorb it all and then apply it differently. It's the incredible thing with people like Keating, and I'm not going to say John Howard was an equivalent. Keating was the wonderful orator. John Howard was the highly capable politician. You know, they were on the same scale but at different ends of the same scale. And since those two, we really haven't had anyone that looks like a leader. You know, Howard was politically ruthless. Keating was incredibly intellectually capable and good with words. They did different things. But these guys came out of a world where there wasn't masses of knowledge, there wasn't masses of books. Mm. Howell was trained as a lawyer. Keating got his training in talking fast, trying to get the bands he was managing into pubs. The amazing thing is this world threw up people for such totally different reasons mm. into positions of making speeches and swaying people's beliefs. The other thing he did uh, through Jonathan Biggin's version of or recounting of the story is when he first got in as a backbencher, the first thing he did was go down to the head of the public service and ask if he'd have a meeting. Mm. And no one had ever done that before, apparently. He just wanted to learn the levers of power. How things physically, how, practically yes, worked. Yes. Yeah. So we've got that. And then just to, to, to round off my earlier comment about our headlessness 
these days with leadership uh, is that quote he made in 2007 against uh, Peter Costello. He said, all tip and no iceberg. <laughs> and, and it was I, just beautiful. I think, sadly, that was the foretelling of the state of political leadership ever since mm. in this country. All tip, no iceberg. Mm. Yep. It says it all. And that's just words. And, okay, we're all sitting here in front of <laughs> microphones to be listened to by people who put funny little things in their ears <laughs> and walk around or sit at their desk or do the dishes or do the vacuum cleaning, listening to people talk. So the number of people for whom listening to words matters might be at its highest level for decades, which is an interesting thought, mm. but it's done privately. So I think we can say the hunger in a population for words and painting pictures with words may not have ever been higher, mm. but it's not shared and it's not discussed. Yeah. You know, if you discuss it at all, it's because you post it up to social media and as we know, people don't look at social media articles, they look at the headline and like it or make it a comment based on the eight-word headline. Uh, you, We share podcasts, I think, by word of mouth. Our podcast doesn't spend any anything at all worth at least mentioning on advertising and, and our audience has, has grown slowly and steadily via word of mouth, perhaps even your word of mouth, David. Yeah, but that's one person talking to one person. I, again, I'm thinking historical here in the medieval period. Mm. When monks sat down to lunch in a monastery, in most monasteries, someone stood at the front and read aloud throughout lunch, throughout dinner. Mm -hmm. mm. Because, you know, most of them, you weren't meant to be talking to each other and talking crap about the local football yeah. league. <laughs> you instead were sitting there being read to. And in a lot of cases, if it was a monastery with a big scriptorium, it wasn't just the Bible. It was whatever most recent book had been brought back from the dead through the Arab world and then through Spain. You know, the rediscovery of Plato, of Aristotle, of Heraclitus. You're sitting there as, you know, Joe Nobody, peasant scum, donated to the monastery at five. Life's not going to be great, but the one thing you're going to get exposed to is more words and ideas than anyone probably in the last 500 years in your family's history. What an amazing thought. So those monks were exposed not to audible, but laudable. <laughs> yes. Mm. Boom, boom. I love that. <laughs> mm. So, all right, let's get, we've gotten historically like how words build up. Where did everyone decide that words were awesome? Like, if you guys need to think about it for a minute, I can go first, or you guys can go first if you immediately know the minute where you went, ha-ha, words, I really, really like them. Oh, I see. Um, as in, uh, it personally? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. To Somewhere in high school. Somewhere in high school? Don't remember a specific event or no, book? Uh, no, I, I don't. Only to say that I think my dad really had an appreciation for words. So uh, gradual exposure just building up by iteration, accretion. Mm. One day suddenly you went, oh, I'm going to try and remember that word because I like that word. Yes, actually, I, the, <laughs> this is, this is a, a funny story, not about me. One of my sisters is a fairly headstrong woman. She's now an English teacher and she never held back from saying anything. She always used her words um, as, as power and sometimes it was... Almost inappropriate. <laughs> Dad, as punishment sometimes for my sister, when she would say or do things that were 
socially baffling, uh, would make a pick up the dictionary and r- look up the definition of discernment. Wow. And then write it out <laughs> 20 times or so and do things like that. So it, it was... Aid her development and curb her enthusiasm. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it always had it's sort of embedded in, into my upbringing, I guess, that... Yeah, with your mum being a teacher and your dad liking words and your sister being, you know, having a lot to say. Yeah. You, you probably were always going to end up being a word guy. Yeah, effectively. I always thought it was a competition. You know, when in class we had to read out the next chapter or or paragraph in a mm-hmm. in a book as we were going through it, I always really wanted to be good at that. And I have absolutely no idea why. At the time, it didn't seem like a skill that was worth. I'd rather be competitive at that than sport. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> at least one you can do until you're 90. That's true. <laughs> um, hmm. Well, for me, I just remember being brought up in the old C of E, the Church of England, (laughs) now squarely in the atheist corner, but I grew Mm. up there. And the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, which was used until, I think, the late 70s at least, in most churches, uh, it was not so much what the words meant, it was the different types of uh, words like travail, even things like, we do not presume to come to thy table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own Good, uh, righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. You know, we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but you art the same Lord whose nature is always to have mercy. Grant us therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat your flesh and drink your blood, blah, blah, blah. Cannibalism. <laughs> mm. and, and just the language all the way through mm. was just... Breathtakingly good. Yes, atypical with anything mm. growing up in... Mar- the suburbs of Marion in the 70s, yeah. you don't hear stuff like that. Mm. So that stuck with me. Um, I still recount the prayer book in dinner parties towards the end of each evening. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Why then- not? It's a very appropriate thing to do to go, hang on, look, <laughs> half a bottle of red and can still do big words. <laughs> yes. And then just to finish off the trifecta, in year seven, Mr. Cowan, my English teacher, introduced me to puns in a deep way. It was ah. fantastic. He was excellent. I remember one day he came into our classroom. We were all chattering and noisy. And he, he just stood there and everyone looked at him. And he said, everybody, raise your hands. So we all put our hands up. And then he flicked the light switch and said, look, many hands make light work. Uh, and stuck forever. Yeah, that stuck with me. And um, yeah. and then another teacher, Carol Fagan, my year nine, ten English teacher at Unley, uh, Woodville High, uh, Unley High um, she knew that I wanted to be in radio. And one day she just brought this drawing over me because she thought of me as a disc jockey and she'd drawn a cartoon of me stretched out with um, wheels connected to my hands and my feet as if I'm a disc jockey, a jockey of discs. Yeah. <laughs> and it was just the most bizarre thing, but it was a bonding moment for us too. Mm. And that was sort of words interplaying with image. Yeah. But. And again, that's the imagery that can come from words or you having to describe it to us now, you've got to paint that in a way that resonates. Mm. So the link between the visual and the verbal is still quite big. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting that you know, for you it was near the end of primary school that sort of you remember really that – yeah, the example of the pun having an immediate impact. I think it was in grade six, my teacher each day, and you, you'll be able to say his name properly. I never knew at the time. In the advertiser, Des Calhoun? Oh, or Cahoon? Des Cahoon. Des, so every day she would read Des Cahoon to us first thing in the morning from the oh. advertiser. 
because it was good in that it was a bit about the world and a bit local and he used words well and it was fun and it was thoughtful. And I don't know how many of us in the class, well, again, little class of what 10 to 11-year-old blind kids, or probably nine or 10 of us, I might have been the only one who really looked forward to that as the best part of each school day. As a young monk. Yeah, Listening to the daily reading. Yeah, so essentially not much had changed from the year 1200 no. to the early 80s. <laughs> wow. I don't know if this is – I just need to share one story about it before it leaves my mind involving my 12-year-old daughter who surprised me. While well, we're talking about that age, mm. um, I, I have a white car and I was told by the salesperson, um, bird poop, you need to get off pretty quickly because – oh, you know this, Tim, because mm. you work in this field. I, did, I thought I was being spun a few things. Just to, oh. <laughs> no, I've got diluted Windex in a little spray bottle and little cloths and I wipe it off and everything. Anyway, yep. there was a good – coverage one day and as yeah. i was driving my daughters i said you won't believe it today i had to wipe 700 bird poops off my car today and my 12 year old she just went hyperbole much <laughs> <laughs> uh, and now some parents might have thought you cheeky little bugger yeah. i you loved just it. thought awesome i just yeah. thought that is magnificent two words yep with a comma <laughs> between yeah no prepositions no. Bang! Just great. Like I would, I didn't know that word in year uh, seven. No, and that was just fantastic. I'm still referring. That was about two months ago. I still, I'm <laughs> sharing that story everywhere. I'm just so proud of her. Well, the wonderful <laughs> thing is, and we're kind of proving our point that as much as you know, the majority of people in political leadership don't use their big words well, mm. and the majority of people in corporate leadership definitely don't use their big words well. That at least people are surprisingly interested in big words or at least using words to paint pictures and that if you're exposed to someone who will smile when you use big words, mm. uh, you're more likely to do it. Yeah. I, I have this argument sometimes with my partner and, and my parents because I, I, would, I, I like to try and throw an, a nice uncommon word in when I can. I'm, I'm sure I'm not the best at it, but sometimes it will then baffle the listener. You know, they might not know the word either, um, or they might not have known the word until I, you know, spring the opportunity for them to learn what the word is. But I've always, uh, I've, I've really internalized that, that communication is um, this battle between the listener who wants higher specificity in language because they can get the exact meaning of what they're listening to and the communicator who wants to use low specificity in language because they're lazy, inherently lazy. So if the less words or the less complicated words you can use as a, as a, as a speaker, um, the better because it's not as much effort. And then for the listener, it's not as much effort to understand the meaning of the, the sentence or, or, or the communication. See, I'd read that differently. Mm. I don't think most listeners want specificity so they get high levels of detail. They don't want to have to think. That's what I mean. It's laziness on both sides. Yeah, but, uh, it, you know, laziness can be expressed in a lot of different ways and really sitting still and pondering for two seconds mm. isn't that much effort. Mm -hmm. But they're not used to thinking about anything. Mm. So why would they start? <laughs> on a difficult sentence. Yeah. They do everything habitually and through repetition, which means a new sentence. So it's more a basal ganglia thing. Can we please repeat yesterday? Right. Because mm. repeating yesterday just means minimal energy and I don't have to learn anything new and I'm not confronted by difference and I'm not confronted by change. And the other thing 
and this is something that would have affected all of us in different ways. You know, Steve stands up in front of crowds. Or I stand up in front of crowds. You know, Tim played guitar, sang, did all sorts of things in bands before doing all this stuff too. He's just as much a wanting to communicate person. And it's that balancing act of how do you communicate enough to get people interested but leave it incomplete enough to make them engage? That that's the really important point. Oh, interesting. Well, I come from a marketing communication background these days, and that whole industry is skewed towards using the smallest words possible. Really? Mm. Mm. That's what it's all come down yep. to for that easy absorption, like the the aspirin or whatever that absorbs 20 times faster than yep. the other ones. Mm. But, and I understand the rationale for that, because professionals and specialists and even business leaders who want to obfuscate, they can hide. They can do behind, it so well. They hide yeah. behind jargon yeah. and yeah, job done. But I remember I, having a trouble remembering her name. Uh, behind the news, um, we had one of the long-serving presenters on the Adelaide Show podcast, and she talked about how their job is to go behind the news for School kids, yeah, which is actually, a great program. Which is a does great it still program. exist? Yes. Oh, yes. awesome! So your daughter's getting to enjoy that the way we did yes. a very long time ago. Yes, exactly. Awesome. Except not in black and white on a flickery TV. That no, was never a problem for me. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for reminding me of that, David. Um, uh, anyway, I, wow. Okay. Um, so we've got the lazy jargon. Uh, people hiding behind jargon yeah. to be lazy or deliberately. Um, shifty. Mm. But then remember, in common parlance, the word recalcitrance entered our lexicon. Thanks to Paul. Thanks to Paul Keating. Mm. Um, in relation, I think, was it Mahatia. President Mahatia uh, stood him Malaysia. up for yep. a, on a meeting or something? And so, sudden, and, and xenophobia with Pauline Hanson. Mm. These words entered uh, common usage because they came up in a highly charged moment. And mm. now, and so there's a middle ground because. Yes, being able to pepper those words is a good thing. And that, yes, they do help shine a more focused torch on what you're trying to say, but they're not the whole thing. That is the, the sum of the parts. That's the mm. rest of the sentences that go with it. Because mm. words, as Mrs. Malaprop will remind us from the great plays of yesteryear, uh, when she talks about the pineapple of my success instead of the pinnacle, <laughs> you can actually be groping for that big word and then completely grab the wrong yep. one and yeah. put it in place. So ultimately... The, the formula stays the same. You have a sender, a receiver, and the message in between, yeah. and your communication job is not done unless the receiver understands the message you're trying to send. Yes. Mm. And many people just think, I've sent it, job done, mm. yeah. wipe our hands. Yeah, rather than realizing, okay, how are they going with it? Mm. It's one of the reasons when I used to lecture why as much as possible, particularly if it wasn't being you know, recorded for later, I'd stop every 10 minutes and go, any questions? was the best way to gauge how it was going mm. and depending on what kind of questions you get. And once people realize you're not going to humiliate them, you genuinely want their questions so they ask, yep. then you can really keep adjusting what you're doing. Mm. But, yeah, again, now doing the Masters in, in Media and Strategic Communications, yeah, the kind of language being used is you know a deliberate how do we get this narrow, short, defined, mm. get it done. It's like... Yeah, okay. I'm glad I'm learning this and then I'll just ignore it. <laughs> um, it doesn't paint an interesting enough picture. Yes. Well, 
there's a there's a couple of things I'd like to share. I'll just do one now and then see if we've got time for the other. But it was um how when you get lost in books, uh, mm. you can move into the world. And I just recall there were two as I was thinking about this chat. Um, one was uh, I lived in Hungary for a couple of years, as I think I mention every time I come on your podcast. Yeah, but the stories are always great, like going <laughs> to the movies in Hungary That's right. and the desperate train trip to get to what Serbia or whatever that time. Wow, you remember everything. Um, That's true. I'm dangerous. This is different. This is when I was in Slovenia. Uh, we, my girlfriend at the time and I went to Lake Bled, which is the most beautiful volcanic lake. Oh, fantastic. And the book I had was Crime and Punishment. Dostoevsky. That's heavy reading in a beautiful place. Yeah. Oh, and I just loved it. And do you know what my takeaway from the book is? Pomard. <laughs> the word? <laughs> the, 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 the hair wax. Yeah. Um, oh. I had always shunned the use of such things because I thought, how stupid some modern waste of time, men preening themselves. No, blah, it's blah, hundreds blah. of years old. And then I hear about his this character pomarding his hair and I thought, oh, it's actually got there's legacy, there's history mm. behind this. And just hearing it described with that word in that context shifted my perception of it, and I've waxed my hair ever since. If it's Isn't a, that bizarre? Dostoevsky, yeah. what great literary outcomes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you take away from it the little bit at the time you're in a state to take away. Yes. doesn't mean you won't reread it later and take away something else. But part of the problem of things that are immense is, well, which bit do you take away? Yes. See, that that to me is the, the more important thing of trying to get a message across to someone is decide which one or two things you want them to get and don't give them five choices. Well, I took pomard away from that and also mm. how not to get caught by the police if I murder someone. Always important. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and the other one is I went up to Bratislava, mm -hmm. which is the capital or I think it's the capital of, of Slovakia. Slovakia. Yep. Uh, it was just after the Czech Republic and Slovakia. So had they just stayed. had the velvet divorce. Yes. Uh, anyway, I went up and I had been reading The Hobbit. Mm. And I was lost in that world. And there I was by myself walking through the streets of Bratislava, cobbled streets. Yeah, the old town. So it looks like it could have fallen straight out of the book. It was a freezing cold night. I had my yeah. long black coat on. Steam came from my mouth as I mm. exhaled. And I felt like Gandalf as I walked through, the, hearing the clip-clop of my, yeah. and looking in the wind, and everything was, it was amazing. And that, had I not been reading The Hobbit at that time, I would have just walked through the streets, I would have thought, lovely, quaint. Yeah. But instead it was rich. At any time, the um, those horsemen could have appeared, yeah. you know, all sorts of things could have happened. It was just, it just you know, mm. that's one little riff about words. Well, it catches those. your imagination. It, you know, I, I didn't think I would talk about this and I only watched it last night. Oh, maybe sometime yesterday. But there, there was an ABC rewind clip. I'm not sure. They do these social media throwbacks where, you know, they used to do Vox Pops on the streets. Oh, the, yeah. The yep. news from, segment. From the 60s and 70s. Yep. Exactly. Most of you can pop up in YouTube feeds. So, yep. and then they, they do the same thing now. So the one that I saw yesterday was... Uh, we, uh, do any Australians inspire you or which Australian inspires you or something like that, something to that effect. So they had the one from the 60s and, of course, I, I especially love the, the kind of accent and the language of yes. people from the 60s in Australia. It's like somewhere between English and, I don't know, I, I can't even describe it. It's almost like um, 1920s uh, New York 
kind it's of clicked. style. It's mm. yeah. and yeah, starchy. Yeah. Mm. Just like our diet was at that time. Taters. Hey, and, and it was wonderful to listen to, and of, of course, you know, a, a lot of them said that they were uh, they admired Sir, Sir Robert Menzies, mm. and I always, you know, and, and say what you will about the collective kind of naivety of of people back then, but it was, you know, they didn't have to say Sir either, and you know, that certainly doesn't add any meaning to what they said. In that era, it would have been very strange not to say but, Sir. But it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful little mm. addition to mm. them. Because their sentence <laughs> again, it's still a much more formal world. It's right. going informal very quickly, mm. but the interviewers are probably not going to want to ask a nineteen-year-old leaping gnome mm. walking around in a tie-dye uh, muumu. <laughs> That's not going to be very appealing. Well, you know what they they did that, and then Rundle Mall, no less, uh, as a comparison. And I was oh, Rundle Mall unpaved, so still a road. Oh no, no, sorry, it's the modern day version. The modern day version right. they did in Rundle Mall. Oh, right, okay. Um, and I think maybe two people, uh, yeah, maybe two people said Dick Smith and then someone said uh, an Australian YouTuber and then pretty much everyone else said that they didn't admire admire any Australians, which I can understand that perspective. But what was really surprising was the vast difference in articulation of that of those points. Mm. Oh, yeah. It was, um, I don't know any Australians. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, it was, yeah, it, it, and I... It didn't seem like it was going to be relevant to the conversation today, but no, I think the, the, it is. The, the point is that, you know, perhaps there was a, a sense to which back, you know, in the, in the 60s that people weren't thinking for themselves as much and it was a, a very collective idea, I guess, to, to admire Sir Robert Menzies. But, and, and, you know, now that we can admire whoever we so wish, that, that it, there's almost too much choice, but... I, I feel you're touching on something really important and it comes right back to David's early bit. Sure. And it's the unfamiliarity with being thrust into a conversation with a leading question, mm, yeah. which would have had to have happened back in your, because there wasn't mm. much else to distract you. Yep. And now... Um, I even saw it yesterday. I was in um, uh, McLaren Vale with my daughters and there's a young couple sitting down and she in particular was just glued to her phone the whole time. Yep. And so I think that robs us of yeah. this ability. Which and is this is exactly, you know, I think the point in the 60s, everyone in that, that early example from what Tim was watching mm. was going to school in a world where you would have been made to stand up, read things and answer questions yes. and to stand to do it. Mm. And it was designed to make sure that you had the competence to talk to strangers and you had enough social norms to be able to be in a new place and behave in an appropriate way mm. and get along. Whereas now we just use law of the jungle and hope that social norms have sunk in. And if we think what most people do now, they take the photo 50 times, then run the right filters over it and then attempt to come up with a six-word clever description, which is normally grammatically incorrect, poorly spelt. Sometimes no description. Well, again, <laughs> Instagram's got to the point of let's just give up on literacy. <laughs> but it, it's also the willingness to embrace in deeper questions. Uh, I, I listened to an audio book on my travel to back and forth to Melbourne for the Melbourne International Comedy Festival last weekend. Uh, see, I got that mention in. Um, <laughs> you can do that twice if you'd like. <laughs> that's, that's all right. That's the second time I've appeared in the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Anyway, um, I was listening to Robert Cialdini's uh, latest book. It's been out for a little while, but it's called Persuasion. Oh, yeah, I've got it, but I haven't listened to it yet. Is yeah, it good? He, he wrote Persuasion, mm. the Psychology of Influence, but this is a follow-up, and it's 
incredible. And it seems really like the more cool. important book. How do you set it up to make sure they just yes. want to go with you? And yes. one of the anecdotes he shares is from a lady who was running, who discovered the secret to have people engage in relationships with you almost without fail. You'd build intimacy fast. And there was a series of questions they were asking, about 30, 40 questions, but there were three stages. And each of these stages was led by a different question. Here are the questions. These are just words, but these words are almost guaranteed to bring you closer to the person you're asking. One is, describe your perfect day. Now, that is a wonderful open-ended mm. question. And I've, I did this with my daughters yesterday, this first one. This is as far as we've got so far. Mm -hmm. And it was hilarious how they wanted to invite friends over. And I just looked forlorn. What about me? I'm, oh, mm. no, that's my perfect day number one. Uh, perfect day number two. <laughs> so there's that question. <laughs> then midway through, uh, what do you look for in a friend? Mm. Again, another question that sends you right back, like the old grocers of years ago. You, you run, go to the counter and say, I want this, this, and they have to go off and find it for you. That's you going back mm. through the store. Having to the sort it all out. And then towards the end, who would you miss most among your family if they died? Mm. I think it's family and friends mm. if they died. And that's a different... Um, it's a hurry up. Oh, yeah. It's a saying, come on, you know, there's a person in front of you who could be a friend. Switch on. So, yeah, very, very clever emotional triggering to move deeper into emotions that if you went straight to number three, it would have no context. Mm. But you're mm. constantly getting people to the point where they're being less rational and logical and you're asking the unconscious to come forward, but you're setting it up to be safe. Mm. Yeah, very, very careful use of words. Yeah, interesting. I, I like that. If ever I'm yeah. on the dating scene again, I, I'll I'll keep those up my sleeve. It's Ooh. funny you say that. Uh, one of the first <laughs> why? What do you know that I don't? Know? <laughs> <laughs> Is this an intervention? <laughs> it's a date. Hello. Um, <laughs> um, no, I mean, I it, you know, when I first started dating my now fiance, one of the first questions I remember it vividly picking her up in in my car and and i think i took her to the movies or something i can't remember what happened it was one of the first dates you're smooth <laughs> and i remember having to i remember asking her and it was a com entirely loaded question um who do you admire and do you tell them um which really <laughs> he went for the big question early wow. <laughs> well because you Did know she say you no she didn't no it wasn't what? that was it was a bit too early for that <laughs> um and of course if she said that she admired that it, that she admired me. She certainly didn't tell me at that point. Anyway, um, <laughs> anyway, no. Um, you didn't get a whiff. <laughs> yeah, that's it. But it, it struck at the court for me. That was important because you know, if, if, if listeners are familiar, one of my love languages or primary love languages is words of affirmation, mm -hmm. and so it struck at without even having to admit to that to her. I was able to work out whether she would even meet those needs, which sounds really clinical but oh, wow it was interesting yes also mm. important because it's one of those things if it can be a deal breaker get in the conversation as early as possible yeah that's and you did that without reading robert Cialdan, Cialdani's book i didn't apparently Cialdini. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just a lifetime of experience of what works and doesn't work and, and reflecting so again the power of reflection now again the power of words to affect states there's two wonderful little questions in zen buddhism to calm disruptive thoughts 
And it's a simple little thing. Are my thoughts useful? How mm. do they behave? Mm. And I found that that combination, even if it's I'm working on the computer and something's inaccessible and I'm about to hurl a $2,000 laptop at the wall, all I've got to say those two things is like, oh, okay, don't. It's that powerful if you are word-based. And, you know, there's more things like that out there in the world. We've all got examples here of very loaded words that work very effectively mm. to get to the heart of the matter. Yes. And the thing is, one person can know why they're doing it. Someone else may go, oh. But the point is, it still affects people. Because even if people don't use language well, they still have to listen to it every yeah. day. Yeah. So, so what do we? There are some sayings that we need to just trample on and destroy as they're stuck and they are misleading. Things like sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Total garbage. Because as we both know from our studies, reputation is everything. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. You can you can linger on some bad poison that's been spat your way by someone not worthy of a moment of your time yep. and it can just ricochet around in your yep. head. I'm thinking of someone right now. Mm. Uh, and and they, they don't deserve to be there. And so now the onus then is how to, to, to gradually suck that poison out and shift on. I'm sure David's got a million strategies, um, but that's just the power of words to yeah. wreak havoc. And whereas if I'd been hit with a baseball bat in my arm and smashed one of those bones, by now it would have healed. Yeah, mm. and depending on what situation you got you know, hit by the baseball bat in, that trauma may have stuck, or if you were playing sport and it was just yes, an oops, it, it hardly would have stuck. Well, so that's true. So the one thing is the verbal attack is a definite aimed at you premeditated. Mm. It's very different to getting whacked with a baseball bat, which in most contexts isn't going to be deliberate. Mm. So it's not either or, it's both no, it's and. it's both, mm. yeah. Yes, and yes. again, in terms of, okay, if that damage happens from words, I, I think the best tool for that is William Glass's idea of the quality world going, all right, what's in my quality world? How should I be? How should the world be? What should my relationships be like? Does that nasty comment have anything to do with how I actually behave, who I'm trying to be, and how I treat people? Mm. It might feel like poison, but has it done any damage to my quality world or do I still want to be the same person and have the same impact mm. and connect to people in the same way? And if I do, then yes, it was awful and I don't like it, but it hasn't affected what makes me me. Mm. It makes me want to behave in the world the way I do. So, you know, acknowledge it and go, you're not allowed inside. Mm. Yeah. You can mess me up temporarily, but you can't mess up what's at my core. Only I can change what's in my quality world. Well, it's made me more me. Yeah. If anything, and okay. so much so that in my business, our one of our principles now is business is personal. Yes. Mm. Because the asshole was just turned something personal and trusting into a oh. way to grab attention and undermine and steal. Yeah. And so it just emboldened me to be more like I. But you still want that closure and comeuppance, but maybe you just... Yeah, but closure and comeuppance are two different things. I know. You can sort it yourself, and then you can decide whether to <laughs> kneecap him. Now, if you need help with that, just yell. Okay. Because there's you know, a good opportunity to use a baseball bat on a knee. You don't get them very often. <laughs> um, well, interestingly, and it's a bit of a leap, I did reflect in getting ready for this chat on two quotes about death where language reframes it. If you're interested, I'll share them with you. Absolutely. Again, the whole yes. point though was just to see what came out seeing we all love like sitting words. in front of microphones, standing up in front of crowds. 
we are so word driven that it really whatever comes up, there's continuities in all of it. Hmm. Well, Terry Pratchett uh, has a quote in which he says, "Don't think of it as dying," said Death. Think of it as leaving early to avoid the rush, which is a flippant way of <laughs> re- of reframing death, mm. which is quirky. But the real quote I wanted to share is from Christopher Hitchens, and this is who sadly is no longer with us. I was going to say this is one of the ones he wrote in that last few months when the cancer was eating him alive. It may well have been. I'm not mm. sure, but I remember hearing it, and at first I hated this. I felt so gutted by what I'm about to read, and now I've come to find great sucker from this. This really makes me go, you know what? Yeah, there's an an inevitability about this process that we just have to accept. Here it is. Um, He's talking about death. It will happen to all of us that at some point you'll be tapped on the shoulder and told not just that the party is over, but slightly worse. The party's going on but you have to leave. Now that is disturbingly Mm. peaceful in my head because we've all had that taste, I think, where we've had to leave a party and you've got that yawning regret that never quite, all the way, but you get over it. Mm. And this, this to me is just a lovely way to describe it and put it into context. And it's the bit that most of us, you need to be shocked out of your self-centeredness when you're thinking about death. Mm. Because thinking about death is, well, okay, you're going to be gone. But really you need to remember the other half, that everything else will go on. And it it also gives you a sort of a, a refocus on, well, if that's going to happen, then what do I want to leave the people who are going to go on with? Mm. So how you behaved at that party before you have to leave, yeah. that's what matters. Because you'll be gone, but everyone else might still love the joke, still love the story, still love the fact you stopped and chatted, still love the fact you gave them a hug before you left. So to continue that analogy, it means don't make a pig of yourself at the smorgasbord or slurp the punch bowl greedily. Mm. Interact socially in a way adds to people's lives. Mm. Well, that's my take. But again, that's the that's the centre of why are we all podcasters? Why do we like to share? Why do we like to help people spread their message? Mm. We're the three people going to come up with similar answers. So an absolute glutton is going to go, righto, the entire smorgasbord, <laughs> the punch bowl and the goon cask. One corner, one bucket. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Live as... Live like a pig. To the no, it's not live like a pig because pigs are actually quite nice. Yeah. <laughs> it's It's... Yeah, live like a human pig. <laughs> and look, and I think I mentioned this last time I was here, but I, I just can't fathom having a conversation about the power of words mm. to inspire and to f- get us to reflect than uh, the Milan uh, Kundra yeah. uh, uh, title of that fantastic book and movie, The Unbearable Lightness of Being. Of being yes. Because... I could actually have a conversation for a few hours on this because if you start from the end, being to be uh, is the essence of what it is to be us, to be or not to be, et cetera. And then the lightness of that, you go, oh, 
we are here lightly. And yet, as uh, Biggins picked up in the gospel according to Paul, he laments the lack of leaders driven by a big vision, a big purpose. Mm. And you think, I was talking to a friend about Les Mis last night and and the the French Revolution and, and the big reasons that people put their lives mm. on the line. Mm. And yet, here we are, snap, we could be gone light as a little um, petal being blown off a flower, and then the unbearable aspect. When you bring this together, it is unbearable. Well, it is to a point until you realise that what you do with your little light steps is all you leave, so it better be deliberate. Yeah, it's a journey to get to that Yeah, it point. is. I'm not saying it's not a journey. So in the Napier building on level four, I think the room's called the Henderson Room. Mm-hmm. It's a tiny little room where you can meet in. And along both walls are bookshelves uh, full of books all before 1914. Oh. And my only thought is these are a couple of graduates who probably died in World War One, and donated all their books, their families oh. donated all their books to the uni when they died. Because all the books in that room are pre-1914. They're all basically 1900 to 1914. Like a whole pile of undergrads and master's students left Mm. all their books. And they're in bookshelves behind glass and they make a lovely backdrop for sitting and having a meeting. But 99% of kids who you sit in the room with never, ever get up and look. But the ones who do stop dead when they start looking at the titles and go, hang on, this is not like an orderly collection or a chunk of something from the library where you know it's just a piece of a big puzzle. This is a few sets of someone's home library. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, you know, that thing of how do you get your head around life and death? Well, words are the only way we can do it. And when you see literally that the words got cut off when the life got cut off, mm. that's very powerful. The word is life. I mean, the, uh, sorry to bring Jordan Peterson's Bible bashing into the conversation, but one of his most profound points, I think, is that the way he describes Adam and Eve in Genesis, or specifically Adam, is that God has Adam name all of the, the animals. and Everything's got to have a word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're not even really real until they have a name. Yeah, because it's always that question of, you know, what's out there? Do we mm. know? So, you know, we've talked about it enough times, not necessarily on the podcast, Dale Jaquette's idea of a combinatorial ontology, mm. that as an existentialist or a phenomenologist who you can't be sure what's out there, the fact the three of us can agree we're sitting at a table, it's covered in a synthetic, you know, mink blanket. Mm-hmm. We've got four, you know, chairs that go up and down. Now we can agree all on that, so that's all real because of the words. Because at a combinatorial level, we can come up with enough characteristics we can agree on for each of these things to put them in a world and know what each other are talking about. Right. So bringing order to what would otherwise be just a, a, a chaotic and intimidating mess. Yeah. Yep. Uh, if we're talking about it not in this room, yes. But I, I don't think we'd need words to agree on these things here because mm. they are self-evident in their physical manifestation. Yeah, but if you... You're over. Say you're the other side of the curtain, Stephen. You discover oh, something over there. Absolutely. The minute you're the other side of the curtain, it's if we've agreed on enough stuff and you describe it to us, mm-hmm. we can compare it to the things we've all agreed on. So the sort of the power of this is someone can go out in the world and experience new things mm. and come back and tell us about them. And because we've agreed on so much, well, why wouldn't we trust you? 
we, we know what we did encounter on the other side of the curtain here in the studio. Ah, so I build trust and credibility with you that we all agree these are microphones and this yep. is a table so that when I'm on the other side of the curtain, not so much talking about the curtains and the table, but describing Anything something else, else to you, yeah. I'm building on that you level keep of building trust the world. and the way that we've shared words. Yep. Okay, yes, that I can – because it's hard to describe an elephant to someone who's never seen an elephant. Precisely. Mm. Uh, and so I guess you're saying by us sharing this, we've got some – piece of the puzzle yep. that you like a jigsaw you can start at the edge or whatever and and get some bearings and move in we've got some common pieces yep. that's interesting and that way when we find things we can't agree on or, or that there's so many words for mm-hmm. then we know hey we've got something here that is so subjective that we're going to ponder on each other's perception on it which is going to grow our perception so part of the power of words is you get to visit someone else's perception of being. Does that if people disagree on that enough, does the word do the words start to become diffuse? I'm thinking of concepts like capitalism or feminism where their definitions vary so greatly so vague. That, yeah. that the word almost loses meaning. Yeah, and this is the thing we've got we you would see it throughout human history. Language keeps changing yes. because words lose their meaning. Mm. They stop being useful in the way they are. Or they shift meaning. They have yeah. new meaning. Mm. Like the, I remember early days, and again, I don't know why we're heading this way because I'm clearly not in the theistic world anymore, but I remember hearing a priest lament, lament years ago that they can't talk about the, the father as an image of a caring, loving um, God mm. for someone who, when they get home, gets beaten by a drunken, abusive father. Yeah. In their world, the term father is something you run from. It's not something you trust. Yeah. And so there's nothing necessarily dramatically shifting in the meaning of that word. It's just one's experience of that yeah. word. Mm. And so they're we, both valid. If we go into the Victorian era where corporal punishment becomes normal and it's dad that does the thrashing, then getting dragged off to you know church in England for any time from the 1840s onwards and, you know, the father, well, mm. very different image. The father is discipline. The father is, you know, you will not talk at the table. Children are seen, not heard. What's that got to do with the message at church? Interesting. So again, the power of language and when social change happens. Ah, oh, and then we get to this dangerous point uh, or a murky point where if we have time to stop and reflect deeper and deeper and deeper, we end up with these little tangential rabbit holes in academia where we're, like philosophers fall victim to this uh, <laughs> grasping yes, for definitely. new novelty yes. where you know it just where it severs its connection with anything meaningful and helpful in life mm. and then it says well why should it need to be meaningful and helpful in life and then we just spin around and there's uh, you know you just let it float away in space well that mm. wonderful word reification mm. yeah pretend that the world fits your theory because wow. the theory has got so many details so many layers surely the world is like my theory well no your theory is amazing and <laughs> but how about you use it to build a fantasy or sci-fi world that other people can enjoy <laughs> rather than be a philosopher and torturous with something well, that isn't yeah. real <laughs> yeah it's interesting you know it, uh, that that word almost kind of 
there's like a, a a shady good part to reification as we talk about the <laughs> well there's rays man so we need that shade so, yeah. <laughs> as we talk about the power of words because i i find myself in this position constantly which is that i'll read a book or whatever it is and then all of a sudden everything that i see around me is cast a new light yep. and i'm mm-hmm. absolutely reifying in the sense that i've just had new information and i am now experiencing the world as if it follows the rules of whatever book I've just read. No, I'd say you're testing the book by trying to live it in the world. But because that you is... don't get stuck there and you don't do it for 30 years and you don't make your career out of it, like most academic yeah. philosophers. But that's, that's, that's a, I feel like that's a, that's a nice part of reification. Oh, it is, absolutely. Well. It's, if you've read it, give it a test run. Mm. Nothing harmful with a few rays. No, <laughs> no, we need some we don't get vitamin D otherwise. <laughs> you just need your uh, 50... Words per minute. <laughs> SPF? I don't know. UV 50. Yeah, UV 50. Or a big sombrero like Les Hiddens. <laughs> so, so therefore, is there like a, not so much a time limit. You know how you hop into a bath and you stay too long and your skin gets mm. waterlogged. Mm. Oh, what's the word? Water? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You get pruny. Yeah. Pruny. Yeah. Can that happen with words? Is there a case where we need to keep changing the water or getting in and out of the words so that they don't seep beyond the level of meaningfulness and or meaning uh, and become less helpful to us. It's like we have to keep marching in a way. Too many words definitely seems to cause problems. So I love mm. the way Camus and Orwell write because there's just enough words to make the thing they want to get across clear, but there's enough room to make you also want to think about it and engage with it. And you know, they use different words in different books to get different effects. So to me, it's that perfect thing. It's just enough words to get the job done and they move on to different words and they try and make as many of them as possible words that people know and it's the combinations that give it its power. So it's like the bath is just deep enough and just the right temperature <laughs> for you to get in, do what you need to do and then get out until your bath time tomorrow. Mm. I, I really like that model. I hate the sort of idea of so many words that actually the bath is so full that you can't lay back or you're going to drown. Like mm. that's kind of pointless. Mm. Or the one where you have to stay in kind of, you know, so long that it gets cold. Yes. So, you know, it's like porridge and Goldilocks and the Three Bears. You want it to be the right temperature <laughs> and preferably the right size bowl. <laughs> and for some vague reason, I'm re- recollecting Ned Kelly, uh, sorry, Paul, Peter Carey wrote a book called uh, The True Story of the Kelly Gang. And he wrote it as if he were Ned Kelly with his level, low level of literacy. Yeah. So capitalization is almost non-existent. Lack of comma, very few, I mean, a full stop every page or two. And it became unreadable. It is for us because we're used to all that stuff. Whereas if we jump back to the medieval period, I wish I could remember what year punctuation became normal. I think it was around a thousand and something. But before then, if you look at the books being copied in scriptoriums, it is just endless words, no punctuation, no spaces. Wasn't formal spelling only like 200 years ago introduced? I thought that Shakespeare spelt words like six different ways. Put it He might have done, but it's more amazing to think that the reason the monk up the front reading to us at lunch would have been running a finger under the words mm. was because he was having to work out where the spaces should be, where the sentences started and stopped. Oh, man. Because it was just a long string. It, so you were interpreting as you read. It, it also sounds like that the words were written to be read aloud rather than 
Well, that's good writing even to this day. Okay. Like if anything mm-hmm. that students need to understand is stop writing in a way that can't be read aloud. If in doubt, say the sentence aloud, tidy it up, say it aloud again, then type that one. Because then the word dominates all. Yes. It is all around that you can't yep. not hear it properly. Because yep. uh, in the Robert Cialdini, Cialdini? Cialdini. Cialdini, I think. Oh, now I'm here. Uh, book, he, he actually talks about some research that showed that background noise, you know, airports, cars, just noises, um, that everyone says, you know, you get used to it. You move to a noisier house so there's a mm. train. You get used to it. Well, you don't. No, it we pretend actually, we do and we just get more and more tired and unable yes, to think. When they yeah. move kids and their schoolwork improves enormously when they yeah. don't have that backdrop. Yep. So we think we get used to it, we don't. So oh. therefore, reading out loud, this is a long bow between those mm. two mm. ideas. No, it works. But it is about one thing. occupying the conscious oh. space yep. fully. Yep. And yes. But, you know, biologically, this has been us for 200,000 years. The story in the cave, mm. round the fire, you couldn't see the person telling the story. Maybe they could make some hand gestures and make the shadows move on the wall of the cave, which is probably where the idea of doing art on the walls for the stories came from. Oh, cool. So really, this is where language is so amazing. Language emerged to talk about the day we just had, Mm. to talk about what we were going to do tomorrow, to tell stories, to try and explain the things we didn't understand, to try and explain where the world came from, because humans were awake for longer than there was sunshine. And you had to have words if you were going to be able to make use of being awake, you know, after dinner. I could think of other ways to make use of time. Yeah, but, you know, dude, you're in a cave with the entire clan <laughs> and everyone might be a bit tired from the buffalo hunt. <laughs> oh, no, I <laughs> meant charades. I didn't mean anything else. <laughs> well, dude, if you want to risk getting the light on the right side of you and falling in the fire or getting taken out by the saber-toothed kitty. <laughs> Gentlemen... Um, I hope you don't mind me wrapping up. No, because we'll go on forever otherwise. The, the thing I want to finish on, if we possibly can, is I'm, I'm sure we've indulged each of our interests in words and that perhaps some of our listeners who uh, have an appreciation for words and say listening say all to the of podcast. I listen to podcasts. Yes, yep. uh, but may themselves not have an interest in employing words in the same way. What kind of tips or... Uh, practices could they get into if they have decided they want to be better orators? <laughs> Dr. Dictionary's word of the day. Oh. Learn all about mellifluous prestidigitation and being a pervicacious flaneur. Yeah, what he said. <laughs> uh, I actually find what helps me is um, uh, the, the thesaurus online. Mm. Uh, if I'm groping for a word and it just doesn't feel like it's the right one. Yep, off to the thought. I just throw that, oh, yes, oh, yes, that's a much better fit. And that's a nice way of just mm. inching to the side just to find that slight mm. nuance. That, and, you know, I've been working words for ages. I love them, but I have no shame in saying New that words. I still turn to that mm. because it does strengthen the message I'm trying to get across. And I, I try to run a check over that to make sure I'm not doing it for its own sake. But um, it's there's just beautiful, ah, surprising power in words. In words that surprise, unexpected. Oh, just to mm. make you mm. keep us alert and in the game. Because mm, the work might be the same, but by adding a new word, suddenly you've put the thrill of the new back in. Mm. That that point 
has has raised a memory for me. I reckon I was in maybe yes, I was maybe twelve or thirteen, and I discovered what a thesaurus was. And, I, and I'm going to change my story from earlier. And I reckon that was the <laughs> that point might have been your I'm, big trigger point. Yeah, where I realised that the thesaurus was better than the dictionary. Yep. Mm. Because mm. if you can re- see the human brain too remembers things in connection much better than it does in definition. Mm. So if you can go, well, this word, like this word, this word, and this word, you're more likely to remember that than a proper definition. So I always struggle when someone asks me, can you define that word? I can come up with a couple of similar words because my brain has built more of its own thesaurus than it has its own dictionary. Yes. And the other thing, just to go back to your question, Tim, something that helped me a long time ago, I was in La Mama Theatre group back in the 80s and 90s, and we had a writer's group and we would often set ourselves some writing challenges completely randomly constructed. It could be like... uh, we go around the group to make a rule. It could mm. be, okay, you've got to use the word orange. Uh, you need to have uh, a seven-line poem and none of the lines can rhyme. Oh, and there must be reference to running. Go. And then we'd have to – and it just forces you to think. Now, th- that was just fun. That's yeah. just pure mm. acrobatics. But then – as we'd read poems we'd written without any of that, uh, I remember Norm Munro, who's now, I believe, in Adelaide, uh, I was writing a poem. It was actually a song lyric, and a blah, 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 up around the bend was how I finished off a, a verse. And he just looked at me and said, that's trite. I said, what? That's trite. Oh, it, it, was lazy. it was lazy writing. I just, I conspired to have that line in there. You wanted it. But it, and he was right. It was I, the chalk top at the cinema. What's wrong with the chalk top? No, well, because I'm a great lover of Leonard Cohen, who never went for the obvious, and I get annoyed when I listen to singers and they just use sayings as they are. That, that's yeah. no point. Why use a saying? You know, moss grows thick on a rolling or far on a, on a rolling stone. Why use that? Why not twist it? And and surprise us when you're using these analogies and and quips, etc. That's what an artist can do mm. to get to, to get us to look at things afresh and go, hang on, that just derailed. Whoa, I'm now back in. I have to pay attention to this. So that mm. ever vigilance about have I just gone through the the, the routine of churning out this sentence, and people do it in business writing. Mm. You know, if I said, David, here's that um, file you asked for in person, that'd be great. But in writing, people suddenly go, oh, dear David, as mentioned previously, please find attached the... Mm. And it's like, what? where does this come from? Mm. And we just flick into this wrong mode mm. of performing how we think the word should be structured. Mm. And... and and that's different for every situation. I'm sure military people do it a different way. Yeah, everyone's got jargon yeah. and everyone's got written jargon because it's the formal record. So yeah. my advice is to try and conjure up that Norm Munro voice mm. of saying, that's trite, uh, as a big stick to hit ourselves with mm. every now and then, some flagellation. Yeah, and it kind of taps into a point we did at the beginning where so many people just want to repeat yesterday. So those mm. familiar words don't take any effort. Whereas if you give them something new, they have to invest a couple of calories to process it. Mm. But you, uh, there's a little budget they've got for that. And, and they if, do. And, and if, if we don't make them use it, they'll forget how. Yeah, but if you push it too much, then their budget's spent and yep. they'll give up. Yep, and that's that thing of not using too many words or too much weird stuff in your one paragraph. 
Mm. Or it's like, oh, no, 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 it's just too hard. You've worn out their enthusiasm for the new. Yes. God bless badinage. I, um, I'm going to give a, a strange tip <laughs> as a, an entry into word appreciation. And uh, um, I don't know how much uh, you two old fogies <laughs> wow. will, will agree with me. Um, <laughs> wow. uh, uh, and, and an appreciation for rap as the um, shorthand for rhythm and poetry. Uh, actually, as a musical form, probably has some of the best wordsmithing. It may not be Leonard Cohen level. It um, definitely isn't. Okay. And I will argue <laughs> that at the beginning it was. Uh, so like I remember being at primary school in the early 80s and the start of high school mm. going, if this is the path rap's on, I like rap. Some of the really early Grandmaster Flash age, stuff say, yeah. was amazing. And by the early 90s, it was shit. And it's never quite recovered. Yeah, I think it's got a role. You know, we talked about before. There's pure acrobatics in the in the yeah. writers' group. It's the acrobatics bit. It's like mm. clever it's shoving of words in intellect. order to keep a rhyme going, and that's yeah. fantastic. I don't think it necessarily reaches the heights of literary mm. illusion, but it's good flushing of the system. Like I would tip my hat to people who craft words and and make them fit certain meter. Uh, over and over again, mm. cleverly, and sometimes they just bastardise words to make them fit. But that's okay. Shakespeare did the same. Yep. I don't mm. care. But it's still the lowest common denominator thoughts and concepts. Just, again, I'm, I'm unsure. I'm unsure. <laughs> no, I, 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 I don't know whether it's just because I am then taking a an, an appreciation. Position. Well, that too. But also, I'm taking an appreciation of words to rap as opposed to gaining an appreciation of words from rap. But so the last person I can think of that seemed to me might have been harking back to the golden age would have been DJ Shadow in the early 2000s. Okay. And I'm, I don't know whether his career kept going or whether he was just too cerebral. I He actually used words to comment on large social issues rather than saying how good it is to be a gangster and treat women poorly. Oh, yeah. No, look, and I, I certainly but and I certainly don't agree with with that content. Um yeah, but that content, it, it's been, a, it, well, it seems a lot of rap, like a lot of popular music. Again, it's this comment of that was trite. We all need the that was trite filter on, whereas actually the fastest way to make money That's right. pushed yes. by a record company okay. is to be trite. Well, but you know why? Because it's highly replaceable. Yeah, you can well, just do that, it over and over that's again. That's the new game. So but I'm not sure that, that that occupies all of rap. No, there's always peripheral stuff, but the golden age was the people who were out there were getting the contracts because it was wow. It was very clever use of words and incredible social commentary you know, in the early period of you know, Reagan's America, which was a pretty horrible place to be poor from a minority. On it was the... great fertile ground for rap. I know Reagan's America, broken glass everywhere, people pissing on the station that they just don't care. Yep, fantastic song. Grandmaster Flash. Flash. Cool. Yeah. One of the best rap songs ever. But I take back my point. Okay. I, mean, I, think it's, I think the form is a fun and interesting form and I shouldn't have just shot it down saying it can oh, never no. reach the heights of literary illusion. I'm sure it can. Um, uh, but I love the form. It's a good warm-up. It keeps you fit. It keeps mm. the brain mm. fit looking mm. for connections. And that is something I honour mm. and I think is worthy of admiration. Uh, yeah, I guess, you know, it's funny because my admiration comes from the use of unusual words and mm -hmm. interesting kind of double entendres and concepts. And I feel like that occupies... Um, uh, uh, Aussie hip hop 
actually quite a, a lot of that, which is, you know, some people just think they, you know, and some of it is, they just sing about barbecue and beers. But I, I think that with uh, the kind of youthful proclivity toward independent music that, that Triple J fosters, or at least used to foster, depending on your perspective, that I don't know. It's not a silly recommendation to make to try and look for those kind of fringe exceptions to perhaps your criticisms. That 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 there are some rappers who or or, or hip hop artists or what what have you that can use words really meaningfully and and, and really hmm. uniquely. And I think that that would be an interesting if an interesting way in, let's mm-hmm. say, to thinking about language differently. It was more my, yeah, my I recommendation. Think, I think the thing with rap is it's from the last period before the lazy period. Yeah, that's a good point. It's the last new form of music before we hit lazy in the that's 90s. That's probably true, actually. So mm. that's probably a better way to put this, that in the lazy period, everything suffered. Like the fact that most pop doesn't make it out of its original major key anymore, mm. which has actually made it easier to work out what's in a song and play that song quickly than at any point in the last 200 years. David, as a violin player, you would know that pretty much most music in the last 60 years is all in tempered tuning, not just tonic, which means that we're all actually listening to frequencies that are out of tune by one or two two hertz. That's the reason why I'm constantly ever so slightly bending notes on my guitar because this is not a proper note from a violinist perspective. And if you don't know what that means, just look up just sonic tuning. Yep. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so again, we started with the lazy period and we've sort of ended with it. Mm. So yeah, the problem's not rap. The problem is that the lazy period overwhelmed most things. Right. Lowest common denominator. Yeah. But there's so many people in the world, whether they're listening to music, whether they're listening to poetry, audiobooks, podcasts, whatever else, who want pictures you know, done in words in their mind mm. that either give them a place to be or something to think about. Mm. So the world's lazy, but there's an awful lot of people doing something interesting in that, you know, laziness. We'll end there. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I just fell asleep. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Steve. Thank you very much, Steve. Sorry for waking you up again. <laughs> That's right, I have another triple shot. <laughs> power down, Steve. Bitch. No, power up. <laughs> and power to you, uh, audience. And thank you, David. Sorry. Hasta la vista, peeps. Hello, audience. Thank you for listening to Blind Insights. If you're enjoying the show, please remember to subscribe and share your favorite episodes or leave us a review if you really love us. We'd love to hear from you. Get in contact with us on Facebook or Twitter at Blind Insights or send us a recorded question to the email in the description to feature on an episode. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the OzCast Network. Peace out.